of young men, young women who are dating each other for ungodly reasons based merely on physical attraction. Some of us may feel pressure to get married. Many might even be unhappy that they're not married. And most of us have felt somewhat out of place and awkward when we were told that marriage of one man and of one woman is a traditional view from another century. That it is time for us to get with the times, look at what's happening around us, look how hard it is to maintain a marriage. It's becoming harder and harder to treat marriage as more than just a temporary business contract between two people. And what a blessing it is then to receive clear confirmation from God himself and one of the commandments that he wrote down with his own finger that he has ordained marriage for our benefit and for our well-being and that he protects its sanctity. Although the seventh commandment centers on a man and a woman who are married, the implications of the seventh commandment ripple out to everyone before marriage, to the unmarried people beside the married people, and to the widows and widowers. If we want to glorify God, it is clear everyone in God's church will actively promote and protect the divine institution of holy marriage. The gospel of the seventh commandment that I preach to you today is that God sees our hearts. God cares about how we use our bodies. And God grants the church the blessing of marriage to assist us as a whole to fulfill the mandate, the mission we received at the time of creation. I preach to you the gospel of Jesus Christ under this theme. In the seventh commandment, the Lord reveals that marriage is a holy and divine institution. We'll see first that the Lord wants his children to honor marriage. And then next week, we'll look at second and third. Our Lord Jesus honored marriage for us and in our place. And the Holy Spirit helps us to honor marriage. And then today, we look specifically that the Lord wants us to honor his marriage understanding its place, valuing its purpose, and guarding its purity. And so we start, as we must always start, with the commandments at the first chapters of Genesis, the perfection of paradise. And we can see that Adam and Eve stood beside each other to receive their mission, the mandate. A mandate is a, is a mission, something that had to be done. And the Creator gave that mission to both of them to fulfill as two unique individuals. Adam was a male and Eve was a female. And although he gave them the same mission and both were heirs of the same grace of life, God also gave them different bodies, different gifts, and different roles and responsibilities. So what was the mission they received? It was to cooperate, 
to fill the earth and subdue it for the glory of God's name. He's saying that, that let all created things in glad communion exalt his name throughout his vast dominion. God commanded his creatures to work together, to develop the garden, to explore, to discover new things, to build, to form, to inhabit the earth and work so that the full potential of that closed flower bud of creation might open up to be a full, visible, beautiful flower in all its beauty. Marriage is found in the context of this mission. God gave some of his creatures the unique opportunity to help each other to join together in order to fulfill this mandate by instituting marriage, the union of one man and one woman who become one flesh. Marriage is given to help us as God's people fulfill our mandate. Godly marriages give the opportunity for physical, emotional, and spiritual support for those who need this from another person. Godly marriages ensure that covenant children are born into a safe, open, and dignified place so that they can experience the love of God as they grow up and find their place in God's plan as male and female. Marriage is a tool for God's church to help God's people glorify Him. Well, you can imagine Adam and Eve hearing the mission and then looking at themselves and looking at each other, asking themselves, what would my contribution be to fulfilling this mission? They were both naked, innocent, and unashamed, and their similarities and their differences would be immediately visible. Some things involved in the bearing of children could only be done by one of them because they each had been made differently. Other things could be done better by one of them than by the other. And so, for example, the gift of physical strength or the gift of nurturing would be stronger in one person than another. Other things could be done by either one of them so that either of them could cultivate the field or pick fruit. But even in these things, they could see that they would complete the tasks in their own unique ways. Even before they were thinking about joining together in marriage, it was clear that the man and the woman needed each other. The world needs men and women in order that God's mission could be fulfilled. They need to cooperate together. There was no way that the church could fulfill her mission if the members were fighting against one another or if either the male or the female was made superior to the other or even, on the other hand, taken out of the picture. Marriage is found in this context, in the context of interdependence of all creatures. As the human race increased, as time continued, and people of many different ages filled the earth, it became clear that married people 
were not the only ones who could contribute to fulfill God's mission. Using the comparison of Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, we could say that there are body parts and organs that best serve the body as pairs, and there are body parts and organs like the heart, for example, that is that best serve the body as a self-contained unit. Some work in God's kingdom is more suited for unmarried people. Not everybody needs to be married in order to serve in God's kingdom. Not every married couple needs children to fulfill their mandate. Marriage was never meant as a means to salvation. Neither are children. God wants his children, his church, to understand the place of marriage and children so these things don't become idols. It is in the in the, in the tapestry, the, 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 the tapestry of male and female individuals joined together with their different gifts, needs, ages, races, and situation, that's what gives God the, the full glory and praise. And so what a blessing it is to look around the church of God, to look around our, our very own congregation, and to see a congregation full of unmarried individuals beside married couples, young people and adults and children, male and female, all joined together in praise, cooperating for the glory of God. This diversity and interdependence is the context of marriage that gives us the right understanding as we consider the unique purposes of marriage. As we look at that in the second point, the Lord wants his children to honor marriage by valuing its purpose. In this context of interdependence, the Lord made the purpose of marriage clear when he called Adam and Eve not only to express their deep unity as companions for life, but also to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Marriage involves intimacy between a man and a woman to help each other to grow as soulmates. And so the Lord ensured that marriage would be a safe place for both a man and the woman. And so we read in Genesis 2, before anything else, there, needed to be, there needs to be a strong commitment to one another. So selfishness is, is out of the picture. And the Lord commanded that the man would need to leave his home to hold fast to his wife. Once this commitment had been made, today it's formerly done by, with marriage vows on a special wedding day, then the man and the woman were commanded to hold fast to one another, to be united, to live with each other day and night. Living with someone day and night allows that other person to know you, to know your heart, to know your soul and your body with all their strengths and their weaknesses. God wants the intimate relations of becoming one flesh to take place in the context of open and ongoing communication. 
in the context of shared lives and stories, in the context of knowledge and trust. In marriage, you get a little bit of a sense of what it means that God knows everything about you. And you'll even find that the things that you don't easily share with your husband or your wife, and maybe don't even speak about it at all, are also things that you are trying to hide from God. Safe intimacy in marriage helps you to face who you are when you are exposed and vulnerable, and it helps you to flee to Christ for forgiveness, for strength, for help, and restoration. Marriage as a close, open, and non-judgmental friendship has an important role in the lives of many men and women to be completely honest with themselves, forthright in their relationship to God as they worship Him through their intimate relations. We honor marriage as a congregation when we value the purpose of such intimacy and close companionship for the spiritual growth of so many men and women in our midst. God wants a wife and a husband to be safe with each other, to be able to trust each other's motives and eagerly seek cooperation in all purity. And such a pure relationship between two soulmates who love God and love each other in all honesty and purity is also an excellent environment for raising children. And God shows his wisdom by assigning the task of bearing children to married couples. Although parents clearly are not the only ones responsible for and capable of nurturing and caring for the children in the church, the saying is it takes a village to raise a child, when they are healthy, eager to serve God, and able, a married couple is certainly an ideal instrument for God to use in this, ha in this task. From the perspective of the parents raising the next generation of covenant children, children who, whom they love and in whom they are willing to invest their time and their energy. A husband and a wife are motivated to work together, to talk together, a male and a female, two perspectives on the, on the best way to allow a child to live in the faith and according to its consequences. As parents accompany their children, from infancy to adolescence. The achievements and milestones give them reason to, to, to praise God, to give thanks to the Lord. And the hardships and setbacks build them up in their dependence on God alone for everything. And from the perspective of the children being born to a man and a woman who love the Lord who love each other, who love their neighbor as themselves, is the most enriching environment they could ever find. Pure and holy marriages are not only a blessing to those who are married in this way, but they are also a rich blessing for the children. Perhaps we could even say studies show what could be better 
for your own formation as men and women in the kingdom of God than having both a female and a male example in your life and sometimes even a, a brother or a sister with whom you can learn to relate to those from the opposite sex by granting children as a gift to married couples as we could see this already before the fall when God revealed how he wanted things to be the Lord reveals that he also loves children very much he wants covenant children to be loved and protected in order for the covenant children in the church to be protected from impure and unholy instruction everyone married and unmarried must ensure that men and women are respected as creatures made in the image of God and that every marriage can effectively serve to glorify God. And in our congregation, there are also those who are raising their children as a single parent. They are also those who need the encouragement of, of all the brothers and sisters as we together raise children to the glory of God. God wants us to honor marriage by valuing its purpose for raising up the next generation and to help one another in this task. And so although it is very clear that not everyone needs to be married and have children, when we look at the mission that God gave, the mandate that God gave to Adam and Eve, and the description of how he gave Adam a helper who was fit for him, we can clearly conclude that the church needs pure and holy married couples in order for them as a whole to fulfill this mandate. The Lord wants the union between a man and a woman to be honored as a holy and divine institution by everyone in the church. Married couples need to be able to trust each other, to be open with each other so that they can fully cooperate together for the glory of God and the well-being of His church. Unmarried couples or unmarried people need marriage to be honored and protected from impurity so that they can dedicate themselves to the more extensive opportunities that they have to serve in the kingdom of God. Children need marriage to be honored so that they can learn about the dignity and the purpose of both men and women and their place in God's plan. God knows who you are as male and female. And he wants both boys and girls and men and women to flourish as they carry out their specific purpose for the glory of God, to appreciate and to treasure their unique bodies and gifts, to honor and respect the bodies, the souls of others, to work together with all God's creatures in a pure and a holy manner. Scripture is very clear what God wants to see, and he also wants us to honor marriage then by guarding its purity. The Lord knows about the fall into sin. The Lord knows about the temptations that we face. And he wants everyone, unmarried and married, to guard the purity of marriage 
by, as we confess, keeping themselves pure and holy. Paul helps us to think about how to do that when he, when he says in 1 Timothy 5, verses 1 to 2, he says that father, or we should treat older men as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and younger women as sisters in all purity. God wants us to treat every person that is not our husband or wife or spouse or child, to treat every person as we would like to treat, as we, as we treat a dear family member. So when we are working with someone of the opposite sex, the Lord wants us to see that person as a whole creature with their own story and their own relationship with the Lord and to treat them with the dignity and the respect that you would want your beloved brother or sister to be treated with. And that's really at the heart of the seventh commandment, recognizing the dignity and the purpose, the place of everyone around you, male and female. And the Lord says, do not commit adultery. The word for adultery in the original language, the seventh commandment, points to the act of putting any wedge between a, a husband and a wife that might destroy their unity and their companionship, that might hinder their capability to raise any children they may receive. The Lord knows that we live in a fallen world. And when two people say, I do, in a fragile relationship between two equally sinful natures, they can expect, as Paul also says, that there will be troubles. There will be an endless stream of temptations. We know what that is about. And that is why he commands the church every Sunday again in the public reading of the seventh commandment to constantly be on guard against the dangers in, our, in ourselves, in our own hearts, and the dangers from without that threaten Promise, their promises to God, their promises to one another. God really wants us to treasure the gift that he has given to his church, the, that, that instrument, the tool of marriage that is so important as we fulfill our mandate to guard the purity of our hearts, the health of our relationships. And since he wants us to honor the dignity of human beings, both male and female. It is not surprising that he gets right to the heart of that and he condemns the demeaning, wicked treatment of those who betray the trust of one another. And that is at the heart of adultery. Adultery betrays trust and so changes the heart of the person who commits it that they often even will tell you, they, they often believe that they are justified in breaking their vows, breaking the heart of their husband or wife, and rejecting the holy 
gift of marriage that God had ordained for them. Adultery blinds many people. Child sexual abuse and rape, which is another form of adultery, causes long-lasting trauma and harm. It's the murderous sin of a blackened heart that hates the purity and the holiness that God gave to those around them. So the Lord says, you shall not commit adultery. Pornography expresses the wickedness of adultery, for it is fed by men and women who are often literally kidnapped, often drugged and enslaved against their will to be mere soulless objects, less than human beings, and exposed to others just to feed selfish lust of perverted minds who want power and control above everything else. The opposite of keeping ourselves pure and holy. The opposite of loving our neighbor as ourself. We confess, as Scripture so clearly teaches, God hates that selfishness, the lack of love, the perverted heart that seeks to remove dignity from children he created in his own image, not only for the harm that adultery and similar shameful sins cause in the lives of others, not only for the harm that it does to the heart of those who commit it, but also for the way that it attacks God and his plan to be glorified through his creatures. The Lord calls us urgently to guard the purity of marriage with a and he does so by clearly condemning and punishing all unchastity. The seventh commandment shows us clearly what the Lord wants from us, his children. And brothers and sisters, if, if you have been hurt by someone who has betrayed your trust and your confidence, either within or outside of holy marriage, you can know that this behavior is not condoned by the creator of heaven and earth, your heavenly Father. You can know, as we confess, that God hates this unchastity perhaps even more than you do. In the Old Testament, among many the sins that could be committed, sexual immorality was the one that was punished with death. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18, that sexual immorality is at a different level than other sins because a sexual immoral person sins against his own body. On the other hand, if you are living in such sins and causing this harm to those around you, you also need to see how important it is for the very well-being of your soul and your eternal life to take decisive action and to fight against this behavior immediately. The Lord does not mention the shame of sexual sins to 
punish you with more shame and with more guilt feelings as if you don't have enough when you're in that struggle. But he does so so that you know he cares, that you know he sees you, and he does not want you to, to leave you in this suffering. He shows you that he knows the reality of what you are facing and what you are doing, and he calls you to him now through the warning, come now before it is too late to repent and to change your heart. He calls you because he loves you. And finally, for all of us who have fallen into sexual sins but then confessed these sins and are, are daily fighting against the desire every day of our lives, God speaks words of grace to us. The same God who adopted Israel as his child, as we read about in Ezekiel 16, who, who adopted us as his children when we were spinning around in the mud and the blood. The same God who washes us clean in the blood of Christ, who turned us and made us his beautiful bride. The same God who watched with sorrow and with sadness and anger. And you read about that in Ezekiel 16. When we turned away from him into sexual sins, yes, this same God has remembered. He remembers his eternal covenant. And he takes you who hide in the righteousness of Christ. He takes you back. Ezekiel 16, the very end, speaks words of great comfort for those of us who turn away from our sins and embrace the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The arms or Father are open to receive us. Brothers and sisters, today I may proclaim to you that we have a God who is very patient with his children and very loving and eager to be reconciled with us. He gives sinners another chance. He wants you to enjoy that picture that we saw as we looked at what marriage was to be in, in the context of the communion of all believers. He wants you to enjoy the restoration of lives that honor God. He is so eager to see this reconciliation that he sent his only begotten son. Not only to pay for our sins on the cross as he bore the wrath of God against these sins that we deserve, but also to obey the seventh commandment for us and in our place. He has provided the way for us in Jesus Christ, and in him your marriage can serve to fulfill the mission, in the forgiveness of sins, in the restoration of the life in the Holy Spirit, he gives us the strength to stand up against the attacks of the evil one, to see through them, to, to say, that's not for me, for I am a child of the most holy God, and I have a different mission and a different calling. Next week, we will look closely at the obedience of Jesus Christ as he obeyed the seventh commandment. That obedience which has been made our own. 
and worked into our transformed hearts by the Holy Spirit. May that vision of marriage that God wants, that marriage in, in the context of the interdependence, the communion of all believers, may it inspire and motivate us to, to run to God for help, to love the work of Jesus Christ for us, to be eager to walk with him in this obedience. Amen.